This is the second sermon in our series on 2020 vision, which we said last week is about shepherding oversight. Last week we were in Acts chapter 20, and this week what I want to do before we look at Hebrews 13, 17, is to, to bring in three texts into this orbit of what eldership is. Remember last week we saw in Acts 20, Paul said that the Spirit makes or appoints elders. And yet, earlier in Acts, Acts 14, 23, it says that after fasting and prayer, that Paul appointed elders in every city. So who did it? Was it the Holy Spirit that did it? Or was it Paul that did it, that appointed elders? And then in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, Paul talks about these elder qualifications and character, and that elders are supposed to aspire. So does the Spirit do it? Does Paul do it? Do, do the elders themselves nominate themselves? How do these texts fit together? I think when we put them together, we see a comprehensive, coherent picture of how the Lord is at work in all of this. So Paul did not appoint, for example, the Ephesian elders, Acts 14, 23, apart from the elders' qualifications and character, 1 Timothy 3, 1, but because of them. And those elder qualifications that Paul saw before he appointed them as elders, where did they come from? It came from the Holy Spirit. So before Paul appointed them as elders, the Spirit had already done that work of making them as elders. And so Paul, it's saying, is only appointing those that the Spirit has already appointed. And if the Spirit has been at work, it's not that these elders are brought into eldership kicking and screaming or as if they're being held at gunpoint saying, do something you don't want to do, the Spirit has already been at work in them. And so this call from Paul or from the congregation is going to correspond to an inward call, an aspiring that the elders have, and all of this is under the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. So Part of the evidence, in other words, that the Spirit chose them for eldership is the character that He worked in them, the gifts that He gave to them, and the way that He stirred up the people to see this is indeed what the Spirit is doing. This is indeed what the Spirit has done in making them elders. So, in Acts 20, it's not different than Acts 14.23. Acts 14.23 says there's, there is human instrumentality in appointing elders, but Acts 20 is taking us further up and further in to say those that are appointed are already the ones that the Spirit has appointed, which raises this question. At Bethlehem, how does the process of eldership work? How, how do all of those texts fit together here? 
Well, over the last year, there's a, a task force that worked with us, challenged us, helped us as we looked at our elder process and our elder pipeline. And as together we looked at these documents that we have for eldership, we, we discovered that we say that there are three paths to eldership or an elder can be brought forward three different ways. The congregation can recommend them, the person could recommend themselves, or the elders could recommend them. But what we realized is that in actual practice, only one on-ramp was being used, namely the elders were recommending. So the elders get together and they say, is there anybody that you see that is aspiring to eldership or that you know that has the character and gifting of an elder? The others have been underutilized. And we don't even think that we've been very clear in letting you know how, what part you play in this process. So I'm trying to correct that right now. The elders don't want to be the only people in the process. We, we believe in the Holy Spirit's work in, in total in the church, not just in us. Therefore, we're, we're asking for help. You know the leaders that you look to, especially in minority communities or cultural contexts where it's not necessarily culturally appropriate at first glance to, to commend yourself when it looks self-promoting. So you know the people that have ministered to you. Please embrace your part as the Spirit works in you and through you to bring them forward. In terms of self-recommendation, let me give a word of clarification here on what aspiring to eldership means. Aspiring to eldership is a biblical qualification. It cuts across all cultures but it is expressed in certain cultures in different ways. So think for, about this for a minute. Some cultures are self-directed, meaning they're, they're fairly self-assertive. They're not gonna have any problem talking about the, the work of God in my life and how I believe he's leading me to be an elder. It's a self-directed culture. It doesn't feel self-promoting. You're testifying about what God is doing. Other cultures are gonna be more community-directed, not self-directed, and therefore, they think it's self-promoting to put yourself forward. You feel an extra burden to wait for others in the community to recognize what the Spirit is doing. And therefore, it may even be considered culturally appropriate to politely decline a couple of times if somebody says, hey, have you ever thought about being an elder? Because the burden that's felt is, I don't want to make sure I'm just putting myself forward. I don't, I don't want to miss what the Spirit is doing and just assume it in my life. So all of this to say, when you look at all of these cultural differences, we understand that it is the Spirit that is sovereignly at work, and He's going to do a drawing work. It's going to be a haunting work, because if the Spirit has made an elder, then what we believe is that those that the Spirit has appointed to eldership, the church is going to appoint to eldership. But this is a prayerful process. This is a process that requires everyone 
everyone that has the Holy Spirit, the priesthood of all believers, to be involved in this process because this calling is so high. And you're going to see it in this text. So before we see it, let's pray together. Father, we ask now that, that even in this sermon there would be a drawing work that Holy Spirit, you would do the drawing. You would do, in fact, the appointing and the making and that leaders and people together would, would seek you, Lord, and you would lead us that your word would be the, the scepter that rules this church. Your word would be the shepherd's crook that leads us and guides us away from disaster. So Lord, speak, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. In this text, Hebrews 13, 17, this may be, on the one hand, the most haunting passage for an elder, but also the most clarifying as to what our call is. So in this text, just one verse, there are really two commands. There's a command for the people and there's a command for leaders. And I want you to hear them both. The call for leaders, for the people, obey your leaders. And then he says why? Obey your leaders because they're working for the everlasting good of your souls. Obey your leaders because of what they're doing for you, for the everlasting good of your souls, and because they're gonna receive an everlasting judgment for what they do. And the call on the part for leaders, be a joyful shepherd and not a groaning shepherd because that will not benefit your people. Isn't it amazing that both of these commands are framed in terms of benefit? Do this because of what they're doing for you. And leaders, do it this way so that it will benefit these people. So in this text, you're going to see these two calls here in four parts of the passage. Number one, you've got the responsibility of the people First part of verse 17, obey and submit. Second, you've got the responsibility of the leaders to keep watch over souls. Then that's paired, point three, with the accountability of the leaders. They're going to give an account to God. And then number four, last part of verse 17, the mutuality of the leaders and the people. The leaders leading with joy, the people having that advantage. So let's look at them together. Point one, the responsibility of the people is to obey and submit. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. And these are strong terms, obey and submit. This is not the only way that Scripture talks about leadership, as if it's just raw authority, get in line. No, there, there's a love and affection that's that the scripture calls for as well. Think about 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, respect those, not just obey or submit, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love 
because of their work. So we, we could look all over in Scripture. It's not just about raw obedience. It, it's about respect, about esteem, about love because of the work they're doing for you. Now, these words that Hebrews uses are very enlightening. The second one we could start with just means submission to someone in authority. I looked it up in a commentary just to make sure I'm getting this word right, and the commentary said that the Greek word for submitting to authority means submitting to authority. Looks <laughs> like we really needed that. But it's true we need that because there's all kinds of creative workarounds to try to get Scripture to say what we don't want it to say. No, it really says submit to those in authority. But this is not a kind of domineering authority. This is not an authoritarian type of authority, especially because of the first word. This word, obey, what does it mean? Does it just mean we're to be not just elder-led, but elder-dominated? No, we're going to see next week, 1 Peter 5, elders are not supposed to be domineering. So what does it mean? Are elders supposed to bark out orders and the congregation is just supposed to get in line, be in lockstep, don't ask questions, and if you do, we just say, because I said so. No. This word for obey is so important. It it means normally, this word means to persuade. And in certain contexts, it has the nuance of obedience. Just think about some of these texts. James chapter three, verse three. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we're we're not just persuading them gently. We put bits in the mouth of horses so that they obey us. That's this word. Even more clarifying for me, Romans 2.8, Galatians 5.7. Romans 2.8, but for those who are self-seeking, and here's the word, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Galatians 5, 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So there is a persuasion of the truth that you're supposed to give yourself to. You're supposed to obey it. And that is so clarifying for this because when elders are leading according to the word of God, obeying them is obeying God. It's obeying the truth. But if elders are leading you away from the truth, do not obey them. You would be obeying unrighteousness, not truth. So everything here hinges on seeing that embracing the authority of the elders is embracing the authority of the word of God. If they're leading according to the word of God, then obeying that is obeying God. If they're not leading according to the word of God and are going to lead you away from it, you have to say we must obey God rather than men. It's all about the truth that's being proclaimed, leading according to God's word. 
Scripture is the royal scepter by which King Jesus rules his church. Scripture is that shepherd's crook and staff by which Jesus corrals his sheep, beats off the wolves, and protects them. So elders do not add to the word. We don't supplement the word. We're not beauticians trying to give the word a makeover. We're preachers just giving it a voice, saying, listen to what King Jesus says to this church. So, we preach the word, shepherd with the word, you submit to the word and obey the word. And in this, we call you to test what we're saying, to discern, check our math. Don't just believe because we said so, but we're inviting you in to hear the word and to do it together. Now, I don't want you to take my word for it, ever. So let's just do an example of that. You might look at this text and say, I don't see anything here about preaching or teaching. It just says leading. Where are you bringing in this preaching and teaching stuff and word of God and all that? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you go back to verse seven, Hebrews has already put this in this frame of reference. There's a bookend between verse 7 and verse 17, all talking about leaders. Verse 7, remember your leaders. Who are they? Those who spoke to you the word of God. Leaders are speakers of the word, preachers of the word, teachers of the word. And now notice the rest. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Don't just obey what they say, imitate what they do, what they're believing. In other words, like we saw in Acts 20, what we saw with the profile of Ezra, studying the word, doing the word, teaching the word, leaders are not just preachers. They don't just preach the word, they live the word. That's why he says consider not just what they say, but what they do, the, their way of life, their faith in the Lord Jesus as they obey him and follow him, you follow them. So important here. And did you notice that there's another word here about false teaching, just like Acts 20? So let, let's read verses 7, 8, and 9 and try to understand the flow of what Hebrews here is facing. Verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you're wondering, how does that flow together? Well, read verse 9, you'll figure it out. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So the author of Hebrews is looking at this congregation and they're in danger of drifting away from the word of God to false, strange teaching that says grace can be found in food. And here in verse eight, he's giving you the essence of their teaching. 
your leaders, what was the word of God they preached to you? It's this Christological confession. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's saying, are you moving away from that? That's what they taught you. That's what they obeyed. That's what Hebrews is all about, the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus. He's better than the angels. He's better than the Old Testament sacrificial system, better than the dietary laws, better than the Old Covenant. He's a better sacrifice, a better high priest. He alone is able to save to the uttermost anyone who believes, and therefore grace is only found in him. So if you think that you're moving away from him and now grace is somehow suddenly found in food, you haven't understood the gospel because Jesus hasn't changed. Grace hasn't moved away from him. So you stay anchored in him as your savior. He's saying, don't Obey leaders that take you away from Jesus. If they are preaching this gospel, obey, follow. If not, do not submit. They are false teachers. So there is a standard and there is an authority. And Hebrews is saying do not move away from Jesus. Now, as you think about what this means, the call upon your life is to obey your leaders. The call upon your leaders is to proclaim the word of God purely, without diluting it, without adding to it. And therefore, part of the obeying has to be a discerning is this what my chief shepherd says? If my under shepherds are saying something different than my chief shepherd, I obey him, not them. So in all of this vision casting that we're trying to do, here's what we're not saying. We're not saying do what we want you to do. And we're not saying do whatever you want to do as if leaders were abdicating our authority and saying, what do you think we should do? Now what we're saying is we believe this is where our chief shepherd is calling us to go, discern with us, pray with us, seek and ask and knock together with us that we together would be under his leading. Now, second, if that's the responsibility of the people, obey and submit to the word of God through your leaders, then what's the responsibility of the leaders? Second part of verse 17. Why obey and submit to them? For they are keeping watch over your souls. What a fascinating reason to obey. Obey them because of what they're doing for you. Obey them because they're working for you. 
for the everlasting good of your souls. The picture I had in my mind is if, if somebody is struggling and drowning and the lifeguard comes in, like they tell you sometimes the lifeguard actually has to lovingly knock the person out because they fight them in their panic as the lifeguard's trying to save them. And Hebrews is here saying, don't fight them when they're trying to rescue you, when they're trying to help you. Like, obey them and don't fight back when they're not fighting you, but fighting for you, watching over you. In fact, there's a certain type of watching here in view that has to mean speaking to and watching over means knowing well. You have to watch well, know the people, because the word for watching means here to chase away sleep, to be careful, attentive, and alert in your watching, not sluggish, drowsy, inattentive, sleepy. No, chase away sleep. This word for keeping watch normally has reference to the final judgment. Give you a couple of examples. Mark chapter 13, verse 33. Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And Jesus is coming again, so stay awake. Or Luke 21, verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day, Come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake, there's the word, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So this is a command to every Christian to stay awake because the worst thing that could happen to you is that you sleep through this life and wake up in hell. And what elders are called to do is not only watch over themselves and their life and their doctrine so that they're going to make it to glory, but elders are like that, that group of people, you know, like at a test or in church or whatever, they see somebody drowsy, nodding off, like just elbow them, wake up. We're, we're watching like that to make sure that on this path to glory that none of us is sleeping our way to hell. We stay awake to the word of God, stay alive to his voice so that we hear him and don't drowse away into destruction. That's what elders do. So, not only are elders trying to help people be prepared for final judgment, they're supposed to do it in a way that prepares themselves for final judgment. That's not only the responsibility of the leaders, point two, but the accountability of them, point three. Four, they are keeping watch over your souls in a certain way as those who will have to give an account. 
This, for me, is perhaps the most haunting verse in Scripture. Paul's already said it in Acts 20 when he said, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He's using the imagery of Ezekiel. Ezekiel set as a watchman over the people. And when you see someone in sin and you warn them, and that person will die if they don't obey, they will die for their own sin and you will be innocent of their blood because you warned them. But if you don't, yes, they will die in, your, in their sins, but their blood I will require at your hand. So as elders, keeping watch over the people, we're supposed to be those giving warnings. We're supposed to be those speaking up. Otherwise, your blood could be on our hands. Think about James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We are signing up as elders to be judged more strictly. Why would anybody sign up for that? You want the final judgment to be harder? This is what ministry is. It is fundamentally preparing people for final judgment. And if you don't do that well, there's so much at stake. People's everlasting future is at stake. That's why nobody does it or should do it in a half-hearted way. I have the words of Lemuel Haynes ringing in my ears. Lemuel Haynes was a, a black Puritan, fought in the American Revolutionary War. He's the one, I just did a biography on, on him on Wednesday for our pastor's conference, and he perhaps taught me best about this eternal aspect of ministry that is supposed to be part of every part of your ministry. Here's what he said about preaching. If you see that you're preparing people for final judgment, here's what your words will sound like. Quote, oh, with what zeal and fervor will the preacher speak? How will death and judgment and eternity appear as if it were in every feature on his face, every word out of his mouth, out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth will speak. It also marks not just what you say, but how you shepherd. Quote, they who watch for souls as those that will give an account will endeavor to know as much as they may the state of the souls committed to their charge, that they may be in a better capacity to do them good. Why do we want to know you? so we can do good for you, better. 
They're going to point out those errors and dangers that they see approaching. And when they see souls taken by the enemy, they will exert themselves to deliver them from the snare of the devil. And the way they live will correspond with what they say. They will reprove and rebuke, warning people from house to house. The weighty affairs of another world will daily direct how they live and what they say in all places and on every occasion. Pastoral ministry will always be marked by the weighty affairs of another world, trying to get you ready, prepare you for that final day. Now, We're also told that with this gravity, there's supposed to be gladness. Look at the last part of the verse. This is now the the mutuality of the leaders and the people. Let them, that is, let the leaders, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Just think about that for a minute. Saying the way that leaders lead, that shepherds shepherd, it should be with joy. They should do it as a joyful shepherd, not as a groaning shepherd. And it's saying, you have a part to play in that. You can make it a a, a more joyful task or or a more groaning task. This means we're together in this. One of the clearest places where we see this interdependent relationship between leaders and people is 2 Corinthians 1.24. Paul says, not that we lord it over your faith. We don't lord it over your faith as if we're domineering. Your faith is in the Lord, not in us. But we work with you for your joy for you stand firm in your faith. What does this mean? It means that what leaders are always doing is not trying to be domineering so your faith is in us. No, your faith is in the Lord. We're coming alongside you for your joy in Jesus, trying to show you Jesus, have your joy be in him. And then Paul says this, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, Who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul says, I wrote to you not to hurt you, but because I love you. I didn't want that to cause you pain because your joy is my joy. I take joy in you, and when I am the cause of your joy, I have joy. And when I know that I'm a cause of your pain, I feel pain. We're in this together all the way. Paul says, I have no joy at all in hurting you because my joy is in you. Isn't this amazing? 
what this is saying, in other words, is that Bethlehem should be the best place on the planet to shepherd because the best shepherds should be Christian hedonists. They should be people that know it's all about joy in shepherding. Joy is what makes you a better shepherd and therefore a benefit to the people. And the people know that if their joy is in Jesus and joy is together, then they're going to be the best people to lead because we see our joy in Jesus together. What is this thing called the Christian life in the church together between leader and people? It is a call not just to know the truth or to believe the truth, but to love and enjoy the truth together, to enjoy the truth of God together, to enjoy the providence of God together in putting a shepherd over you and in putting people here to lead. It is a call to enjoy the work of Christ that makes us a blood-bought family. It is a call not just to believe these things or follow these things, but love these things. Find your joy in these things so that shared joys become doubled joys and shared sorrow becomes sorrows cut in half because we're in it together forever. Now here's my conclusion. Why would anyone want to accept a stricter judgment like this? The answer, I believe, is what we saw in Acts 20, because that's what the Spirit has done. He's made you a shepherd, which means you have to shepherd. Shepherds aren't happy unless they're shepherding. Even though they know it's such a high calling, with such high accountability, they can't do anything else. I've been reading a book on shepherding called The Care of Souls, Cultivating a Pastor's Heart. And here's what he says. He looks at all of the classical texts throughout church history that talk about pastoring, and he's trying to recover them. Here's what he said. The classical texts of pastoral care have always called the cure of souls a habitus. That's where we get our English word for habit. But habitus means something way more than just mere habit. A habitus, a pastoral temperament or character worked by the Holy Spirit through his means. To make pastors, you need the person and power of the Holy Spirit who forms and shapes men inwardly to shepherd his flock. Why would they take on a, a stricter judgment be ready to give an account because God has done it in them. And they can't help but do it. It becomes a consuming desire. So he says, you don't actually adopt this. You acquire it. You don't find it necessarily. The Holy Spirit finds you in making you this way. And he says in his book, quote, there's a lot about pastoral work that still frustrates me that still pains me after all these years. Yet to this day, 
There's a sense of satisfaction in a sermon well-crafted and delivered, a soul comforted and strengthened, hearts enlightened and inspired through faithful teaching. It's the same satisfaction that I experienced as a youth working on the farm after a long day of exhausting manual labor, gazing at a field with freshly mown alfalfa, neatly organized in the waning light of the setting sun, waiting for the harvest. I think that's what gives pastoral ministry its joy. Not just that sermon comforted or consoled or inspired. It's the final harvest. What I want to add to his description is for me, the moment of greatest gravity and joy when it comes together for me in ministry is at the Corley Strategy Meeting every January when I read off the list of the names of members who have passed from this life and entered into glory in the past year. What I always do is I read Mark 12, 26 and 27 Jesus is rebuking the Sadducees for not believing in the resurrection. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. To people who didn't believe in the resurrection, he said, don't you know the passage about the bush? He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, past tense, like I'm not anymore. I am the God. So when I read names like Marlene Johnson, I say, God is the God of Marlene Johnson. And in my heart, with joy, I say, safely home. What a privilege to be part of this, to be preparing people, God's flock that he purchased with his own blood, I get to be part of the joy of seeing them safely home. Let's do this together in a way that says we believe it together, we love it together, we enjoy it together, and we will meet the Lord in the air together. Let's pray. Father, be at work, I pray. And help both leaders and people to feel the great gravity and gladness of this calling. And may your blood-bought family be closer, more tightly knit. May this vision set before the people, may it help us to see the people more clearly, speak to them more specifically, love them more fully, and to do it all more joyfully to benefit them. In Jesus' name.